Welcome to the Televerse, the podcast just for TV. Because it's great, we're lucky they make so many fine programs to see. Your hustle and Kate like to debate the merits of all that they've seen. Comedy, genre, reality, drama, and anything that's in between. Welcome to the Televerse, less of the show. Hello and welcome to the Televerse. This is Kate Kalsik, joined as ever by Noel Kirkpatrick. Noel, how's it going this week? Uh, I've developed a little bit of a cold. Um, which is fun uh, when you have to do <laughs> Yay. podcast. Yay! Um, it actually got like really worse today. Um, so this this will be fun. Yay, listeners! This is going to be a short one for for us at least, um, uh, because I'm on location, as you can probably hear based on the audio quality. And Noel is sick now. Um, I hope that this is like sick and not flu. Oh, I I, I think it's just a cold. Um, okay. <laughs> excuse me. Um, I ha- I'm not running like a fever or anything. So, and I did, and I do get flu shots. I did get a flu shot, yeah. but I mean, Me that's too. only a certain degree of effective this year in particular, it seems like, but, um, I've, yeah. So I think it's just a cold. Yeah. Okay. Well, we will get to it and keep things snappy here so you can go rest your, your throat and, and, and have some soup and everything. I've had so much soup this week, Kate. So much soup. <laughs> <laughs> Good times, good times. Um, at the end of the show this week, we're talking with friend of the show, Corey Barker, from TVGuide.com, about the 25th anniversary of WWE Raw, which we recorded before the actual episode. So we don't actually talk about the 25th anniversary special, which opened, of course, with Stone Cold coming out and and uh, and slamming uh, Shane and Vince McMahon, which is just so appropriate. But we talk about the, the history sort of of the show and our relationships with it and and sort of how we, what we've noticed in, in the progression of the show over the past 25 years. So that was a really interesting conversation. It was super fun. That's coming at the end of the podcast. Yeah, no, it's it's really great. And uh, something that we haven't really discussed on the show before. So I was really pleased that Corey came on to discuss it with us. Yeah, it was super fun. Um, so look for that at the end. Uh, before we move into our week in TV, we're going to skip the TV news this week, guys. We'll do some next week. But we did want to mention we got uh, a comment on the website from Vincennes, uh wanting to know about uh, a couple of things with our resolutions from last year. Did the two of you make a list of the things you watched and what you thought of them, like ranking them or something? Um, I was wondering, especially when it comes to Kate's resolution of watching more YouTube and web series, which shows she liked the best. I think you guys kind of did that, but if I remember correctly, there were a few ones missing. Um, so for me, the ones that I ended up liking the best uh, was, oh, goodness, Caleb, the one with Caleb. I'm sorry, I don't have I don't have internet, everyone, <laughs> as I'm recording. So the the ones I ended up liking the best were uh Pride and Prejudice Adaptation and the um Her Story and the the Wondrous and Gay Life of Caleb something. I will put it in the show notes. Those are the ones I ended up liking the best, but I also really liked Carmilla. I really liked several other ones that we did. How about for you, Noel? Which was your, I mean, it was it was in your top 10. So that was your favorite anime that you watched. Right. I had two that ended up in my um, top 20. So I had Soccer Request and uh, Descending Stories were both in my top 20. Um, but I do have them listed in my uh, spreadsheet. Um, but those were the, like the two best ones that I watched by far and away. 
Yeah. Um, Vincent continues uh, that he checked out Carmilla because of our conversation around it and ended up really liking it. And despite the shortcomings of the show, um, it, it he remembered he thought it was really refreshing, um, all the queer representation in the show. And uh, so he went back looking for other web series that had that aspect in common with Carmilla, uh, but something a little more down to earth. And he found Anyone But Me from creator, writer, and director Tina Says Award. I don't know if you watched that uh, show. I did not. I have not heard of this one, uh, Vincent. But what impressed him most was the density of the storytelling um, and the production and how well, well everything just kind of comes together and clicks into place. I binged the whole, sh- whole show in a day and then another show um, from the same creator called Producing Juliet afterwards, which did have a very different tone with characters who were about 10 years older than those in the previous, you know, in anyone but me. I'm not very good at reviewing your show or even telling people what I like about certain series, but I like smaller, less loud and low stakes dramas more than something big and flashy. And both of those have exactly that. Plus interesting characters, performances and dense storytelling. So if you haven't already, maybe you can take a look and tell us what you think. Yes. When I have some free time, which I don't know when that will be, but when I do, I'll make a note to check these out and I will loop back around to it. Have you heard of either of these? No, I haven't heard. I don't, I think I maybe have heard of producing Juliet. Maybe. But I definitely mm-hmm. haven't heard of um, anyone but me. Okay. So more on this when we have more to say. Uh, we also heard from Glenn, who appreciated our discussion of, of Good Behavior. Um, if you haven't yet, go check out Good Behavior. It's a really fun show on TNT. And we want it to get a third season. So more people need to, to be talking about it. Um, but with that being said, we should get to Are We Can TV? while I still have power on my laptop and while Noel still has a voice. So we'll take a quick break, listen to some music, and come back with our week in comedy and reality. My anaconda don't, my anaconda don't, my anaconda don't want none unless you got buns, hun. Boy, toy named Troy used to live in Detroit. Big, big, big money, he was getting some coins. Was the shootouts with the lure, but he lived in a palace. Bought, bought me Alex and the McQueen. week in comedy and reality we're going to talk a bit about the premiere of the detour then i'll talk a bit about the season five premiere of drunk history we'll both talk the good place the penultimate episode of season three uh, season two sorry burrito then we'll talk full frontal with samantha b's apology race go right into the amazing race gotta put your soul into it and um i think there was another episode this week too uh, as, and then we'll round things out with the season premiere, season three premiere of Drag Race All-Stars, Repulse Drag Race All-Stars, I should say. So first up is The Detour, which, of course, is uh, is on TBS, and I feel like we're the only people watching it. But we were pleasantly surprised with season one and, and enjoyed season two. How did you feel about this season three premiere? Uh, I was really happy with the overall reset um, of what they were going to do by having them in Alaska. Um, and I liked the big reveal of everyone's here because they've done something wrong in the lower 48 and they're they're running away from things so the idea that they all have these roles that they've sort of assumed um that they figured would never ever be used like being a roller coaster architect um 
ne- would never come into play and then suddenly come into play. And so I like this idea that they're in this town of similarly minded misfits. And I think that there's a lot of comedy that they can mine there as they very much would prefer to be normal, but just can't. So I, I like I, I like the tensions that this uh, town that they're going to be in uh, creates, and I was very gung ho. But then um, I'm a, I was a little upset that we were immediately back into the um, uh, United States Postal Service Investigation Squad stuff. Um, um, as much as I love um, what's her name, um, Laura Benanti. Yes, Laura Benanti. Thank you. Um, I was just like, no, I I, I love you, but. No, I don't need this right now. Not in the first episode anyway, because it's not going to take her any time to get to Alaska. So um, I'll be curious to see how they, um, since they're fast playing that, how um, what they're going to do there. But I was I was just like, I just kind of need you guys to hang out in Alaska for a little bit. Um, but how did you feel about the run? I I was just kind of like, okay, that's fine. Whelmed, I think, is an appropriate mm-hmm descriptor um i was less enthused with season two um i was very excited about the beginning of it but then i felt like it kind of petered out and the uspis thing certainly didn't really pay off the way i think they wanted it to um i really i always enjoyed the this cast of characters it's lovely seeing natalie z gets actually like some interesting things to do at least comparatively to what she's gotten on other shows um and i love those kids (laughs) jareb and delilah Uh, i like that they played at least paid lip service to the idea of them like with fake names and all this stuff and just then quickly move that to the side because I think that's not only uh, more believable. I don't see Jareb remembering his name is not Jareb. Um, he couldn't even and, get and, through one day. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And the, the workaround they gave like fair enough. I'll give it to you. It's a wacky enough show that I'll give them this town of where everybody's hiding stuff. Um, and as for the end with Benanti, I I feel s- similarly to you, um, except I don't care about any of the Uspis stuff, but I'm glad that she's back. Yeah. So if we can get her without all the baggage, like now it's personal and now it's like outside of the law, you know, like she doesn't have backup, it's just her, then that's more interesting to me. Or like that's a way to get to continue to watch her have fun without the structure that really bogged down part of, of last season and, and, you know, ended up not really coming together strongly enough. So that's sort of where I'm at with it. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I, I, I think, I, I think that there's a lot more they can t- make out of the setup for this year, which is good. I think it's a good change of pace, but I also need them to develop some threads more so that they can pay stuff off or it'd be completely episodic, but I don't, if they're staying in the same place, I don't think they're going to be completely episodic. So I don't know. I, I, I think that there's more that they can do with this group of characters and, and performers and, and everything. I just, I'm not necessarily confident that they will. So I'm, I'm hoping, but I'm not like stoked to watch the next episode. Yeah. And I think that's a fair concern to have. Um, I'm willing to give them a little bit more leeway, I think. But I totally get where you're coming from, and I don't disagree that they should probably either develop threads more or just go strictly episodic. And they won't go strictly episodic. They've never really been strictly episodic. I mean, even in season one where they were pretty, like, just sort of location-driven based on the whole road trip motif. 
um, they still really pushed forward a lot of stuff. Um, so I don't know that they're comfortable with that anymore. But I will also always be here for Jason Jones trying to drive a snowmobile over a river. And just watching that just <laughs> fail immensely. It's very good. The the skidoo and the subtitles for the skidooin, what you skidooin, yeah. um, was was delightful. And uh, hopefully they'll get a little more creative with their Alaska humor and comedy. And uh, you know, not quite so surface level. But uh, I I would very much appreciate if if that was just like a theme of this season is very Alaska driven like subplots and. Uh, and uh recurring gags so we'll see what they do but yeah the 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 snow the snow machine over the river was a was a good call snowmobile snow machines make snow (laughs) on that note uh let's move on to drunk history which had its season five premiere heroines um this had okay this was a really terrific premiere noel i know that this is not your show but I highly recommend it to you and any of our listeners because the storytellers, the drunk historians were Padgett Brewster, who's always terrific, and Tiffany Haddish and Amber Ruffin. Three excellent storytellers right there. As reenactors, we had Evan Rachel Wood, Busy Phillips, Mandy Moore, and Alexander Skarsgård showed up under this like massive beard, too. And they all were terrific. It was super fun. The, the Tiffany Haddish segment has been kind of making the rounds. Um, they put it up at Vulture and some other places to kind of promote the new season. Um, but like really all of them it was a very consistent first episode and they they, they it was delightful it was super fun to watch and so to, to dedicate the first episode to lady heroes and um having you know uh Padgett Brewster and Tiffany Haddish and Amber Ruffin all like people are talking about Padgett Padgett because of course that's her twitter name Padgett 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 um and Tiffany Haddish people are not selling Amber Ruffin uh, like I think they needed to be pitching that way harder because, of course, she's delightful on on late night with uh, Seth Meyers. So yeah, I was I was very pleasantly uh, I was very pleased with the premiere, and I look forward to sharing it with my family. Does any of that sound like enticing to you at all? It it actually sounded uh, after you left a note in our document about it. I was going to make time for it, but then I kept watching Mosaic. So I did not make time for drunk history this week, but I may circle back to it after we get done recording. Yeah, it's it's badass ladies fighting in the Revolutionary War, uh, saving art from Nazis, and uh, then starting the the American Red Cross. So there's some some nice. Uh, yeah, I think if I had to pick a favorite, I think it's Busy Phillips channeling Tiffany Haddish. But like they were all terrific. So yeah, it was a, it was a very strong premiere. Let's move on to The Good Place and The Burrito, which we are judges. My Rudolph. Our judge was My Rudolph, which was delightful. Yes. And very, very good casting. I was very happy with that. Yeah, definitely. And and with her burrito and a little extra dollop of envy on it. How did this uh, episode work for you? Setting up the finale and, you know, like just very consistently judging the characters. Like very, it's very clear what's going to happen by the end of the episode and then we get a little wrench with michael and janet showing up but how did you feel they like executed this build up to the judge and the individual trials they they had i liked the individual trials and one of the things i've really appreciated about the consistency about this show is regarding eleanor and how it's not that she's particularly smart though she is it's that she's just super observant and aware of whenever someone's trying to con her because she herself is constantly trying to con people 
Um, so she's just hyper aware of it. And so I really like that she just picks up on these little tells that either reveal the fact that they're in the bad place or that the judge has swapped out Chidi for someone else. Even though in this case, Chidi saying setting aside ethics for a second is a dead giveaway for literally everyone. But I like that the show's very consistent in how that depicts Eleanor. And so the rest of the challenges, I, challenges the rest of the ta- tests I thought were really good. I enjoyed Tani's um, hotel hallway of temptation and Jason wanting to play Madden, but he couldn't play with Jaguars. Go Jaguars! <laughs> um... And so, no, I really, I, I, I really appreciated how each of these particular sort of um, tests were sort of reflective of their own big major problems that we've already sort of addressed in a lot of ways. So having them sort of confront them again, I think, is good as we enter this last phase. Um, were you surprised by how um, we sort of got Michael back so quickly? Because I was really expecting, and I think Eric Adams wrote this in his piece about it, um, I was expecting a search for Spock season three, where they go and try to save Michael. Mm-hmm. Um, but that doesn't look like it's going to happen. And now Sean's just going to be trapped in that featureless room with a never-ending supply of New Yorker magazines. <laughs> yeah, that was such a nice touch. Um, yeah, th- I think it was smart, though I it, they could have gotten a lot of mileage out of a search for Spock season. Uh, but I think they didn't want to leave Ted Danson away from the rest of the regulars. So, like, he would be great. They would be great. But they're better when they're all together. So I think that's why they decided to bring him in. And clearly, they have a stronger sense of what they're doing next season and in the long term than we do. Because we're just standing here going, like, how are you getting more seasons out of the show? Yeah. Um, and they apparently are not concerned about that. Or if they, because if they were, they would have done the search for Michael season. So, um, yeah, we'll see what happens with that. I thought that having Janet, like, especially with her, like, however many hundreds or thousands of reboots, like, having her able to adapt and, like, figure out how to fake be be bad Janet. And it, it's, it's part of this con- continuing thread of the show examining what it means to be good and can you be bad and also still good or, you know, like all these, this different conversation and it's just fun and it's a nice surprise. And um, Darcy Carden is always fabulous. So she has a good job too. But um, yeah, having, having them back, I think is, is, has me very interested and intrigued for the finale. And as for the individual uh, judgments, I I thought that they, they did a good job of, of just having one of them really be, a meaningful emotional one which is the one for Tahani and just giving some real heft to that scene and then just Chidi is just literally just pick a hat like I they, they, they had the balance of comedy with and pathos I think just right for the four of them and the one with Eleanor is a bit on the nose um, as soon as Chidi like you know take, starts to you know he he's not dithering enough he he should be more upset His he should be pacing like as soon as he takes her hand I like that they didn't make that be what tipped her off i like that she was like that was like what put it over the top but she already noticed that he was saying things that chidi wouldn't say um so it's not just the romantic angle it's also just everything uh, i appreciate that and i look forward to like i said i'm looking forward to the finale uh they do not have a screener up so i have not seen it yet uh, um any other th- any thoughts for you about about like this michael and janet stuff 
No, I I really also liked the Michael and Janet stuff and really appreciated, um, again, well, just what you were saying about Janet's whole reboot thing that she can learn to be, pretend to be bad anyway, um, within a particular context, uh, but just very much wants to be good all the time is not comfortable not being good and so i I really appreciated that and i but i also appreciated that they basically just gave her like two big stunt sequences and that made that made me also very happy i'm sure both um uh carden and the fellow who plays sean whose name escapes me um both probably enjoyed that sort of like break in their typical routine of what they're typically tasked to do on television so that was fun too yeah um, what are you looking forward to most for the finale? Um, seeing how they're, I'm, I'm just super curious about how they're going to set themselves up for season three on just like a narrative level. I'm really, really curious about how they're going to set this up and how whatever scheme Michael has potentially cooked up to get them out of this pickle. Since the judge is just like, I've already sentenced them. They're going to the bad place. We don't have an appeals process, I'm assuming, because I am an all-knowing entity that was created when there was nothing but hydrogen around. <laughs> um, so I'll be curious to see how Michael talks them out of this and into the good place, or what happens with this. So, Yeah. Um, also, we should note, this is the first time we've seen them in the clothes that they would want to wear. Yeah. Which, which I think was an, a really neat thing to do. And like Eleanor's wardrobe is so different than anything we've seen her in because as like, there've been, so there were some interviews with the costume designer um, for the show that were going around a while ago, but she's always been wearing things that fake Eleanor would want to wear. Um, yeah. And so like to see her, it, it, it was striking to me. It was just it was, like so different. It was like, you look weird. Go put a blousey, like, you know, peasanty shirt back on because that's weird. <laughs> but she was so clearly so happy to be back in her own clothes, too. Yeah. Um, so there was a neat thing. And, and also Jason, of course, who, you know, had to be dressed like Jianyu for the first two seasons of the show. So um, I like the show's attention to detail with that. And it's really neat. It was cool that they sent the uh, had the costume designer out talking to press about it. And there were some write ups about it. I thought that was great. But. Um, even just within the show to to have that awareness and that little touch. They didn't comment on it. They just let it, let the performances show that. And I thought that was a really neat touch. It was a really neat touch. And uh, it, was, it was, yeah, it was just a really neat touch. Yeah. yeah. Um, next up is Full Frontal with Samantha B and the Apology Race, which they've been hyping for a little bit. They sent, for those who don't watch Full Frontal with Samantha B, they sent their correspondence out uh, two weeks ago to apologize for anything that Trump said or did that they felt required apologizing to people. Um, and they hit the jackpot with their timing. I mean, granted he's doing things constantly that require apology apologies, but like, like they really, really, it was a list of like 61 things that, that he had done in that, those two weeks that required apologies. Um, but, but they like, they really hit on a particularly notable, two weeks uh how, how did how did they do i i thought that this was really good and uh funny and i'm glad that they're sort of making sure that they're going to do like follow-up sort of things like they had one of their correspondents go to puerto rico and 
were just like have to leave basically because something else came up but then they're just like what what we're doing port- another puerto rico thing at the end of march so don't worry that's coming up and i so i appreciate that they're teasing some of their more like on location uh reporting that is the show does very very well when they do it so yeah. i'm looking forward to that but the overall comedy of this i thought was really good of um the one guy realizing how hard it was going to be to apologize to just all of Mexico city was very good. And, but building on that by going to Haiti, by going to Atlanta, um, there was just, they found a lot of really good, uh, road comedy that hit a number of really nice things, I think. And, yeah, it was just, it was very funny, um, and weirdly, like, I was expecting the whole like, idea of it to, like, run out of steam, um, because they devoted, like, a, the good, good chunk of the episode to this, and it never felt, it never got tired, because it's just so ridiculous the amount of things that we're apologizing for. So, yeah, I was just really impressed that they didn't run out of steam with anything. Uh, how did you feel about this? I'd co-sign completely. I think it's because they focus so much on, or they balance it well with like them walking around and saying apologies to things, but also with changing up the format a little bit in different areas, um, having an interview, like a mini interview with Schiff, a little mini interview with Dan Rather, um, and then person on the street interviews in, in Puerto Rico and Mexico city and Haiti and the, the dreamers group and having like the steel worker, having some be like one-on-one sit downs, having others be just like standing in location and the different perspectives of the people that they spoke to really interesting and compelling. So having like, like they were talking about having like finding themes in how different like nationalities of people responded, which I thought was interesting. The differences that we saw in Haiti versus Puerto Rico versus some of the other places that they went. Um, but, and you know, of course they're choosing what we see. So who knows how many people they talk to, to get those talking heads. But I thought that, that on the whole was really well put together. And, and because it wasn't, they didn't just go for one joke. They also had, you know, they had a serious conversation with some of these people and then they would lighten things up and then they'd, you know, bring it back around. And they also split it up into the different chunks and had uh, like, if this is something where I think the commercial breaks help, <laughs> you know, and yes. the structure of that allows, uh, allows us to cut back to Sam. And then she just does like a nice little, another little like intro, but that's enough to like smoothly transition us to the next bit. So uh, yeah, I thought it worked really well. And I really am looking forward to them following up with some of these groups. I liked um the the correspondence you know when they're like normally this would be a whole show but there's so much insanity happening right now that we can't make it the whole show but it should be because these people's responses to what they're experiencing are really interesting and really fascinating and it felt like a a good um kind of follow-up to their actual working class <laughs> um uh thing that they did last week or the week before so yeah it, it was certainly um i think their if they're if they have such a thing as an Emmy episode, I feel like this should be it. But um, yeah, it should be it. Yeah. Um, I guess I guess my one my one quibble with this apology race episode is that it didn't end with a head to head challenge. It, yeah, I think it really needed a head to head challenge. Kate. <laughs> well, that's going to take us into the amazing race. And they had two episodes this week back to back. I have uh, got to put your soul into it. And I don't actually have the title for the other one in front of me, um, but I think that I think that they're just sort of combined together. Like okay. I, my DVR just 
Just gave him two hours and didn't give me a second episode title. Okay, fair enough. Um, yeah. so we had the return of the head to head, but this time it was a it was skill based, right? It was a game, not a physical endurance. So theoretically, the more you do it, the better you should get at it, as opposed to last right. time, where the more you do it, the worse you get at it. I think that was a very big, important change uh, between these two head to head. So, uh, did it work? I mean, obviously, I was the one who felt very strongly about this last time. How did it work for you this time? Uh, I, I prefer something like skill based rather than like physicality based um, for head to head. So this worked a little bit better for me as well. But well, I'm saying as well as if I know how it worked um, for you. But I, I think it worked better, at least sort of on an entertainment level. And it especially didn't feel as like drawn out as like the races did um, in terms of like the course and the spells and all of that. So this whole sort of like botchy sort of um, game um, allowed them to kind of have a little bit of suspense built in as opposed to just, Oh, watching people wipe out with bags of fries on uh, dollies is just like, that's that gets old very quickly. And here you get a, you get something new each time, I think. So that I think helped sort of, Make it a little more entertaining and a little more compelling, even if, again, I don't really still don't really like the premise of just sort of everyone having to stop and wait and do this thing and then maybe get held back, even if they did really well on everything else. Yeah, it feels like for me it's overweighting one aspect, which, of course, they can do whatever they want. It's their show. They're deciding the rules. But, um, yeah, that, that it it is it, I was, it feels like it's not fair but it's their show and it's their rules, yeah. so it is fair. <laughs> but it doesn't feel like it's in the spirit of everything else. And it, it ties in with this idea of them con- like putting in these travel things such that everybody gets regrouped again so that nobody can get too big of an advantage. Because um, And then at a certain point, it's like, okay, well, but what do what are they looking for for a, to, be, to be a good contestant on the race? What do you need to do? If everything, you can do everything right, and you just suck at throwing stuff, and then and that kicks you out of the race. That doesn't seem like you know you should be able to make up time in the various things that you do. Is sort of how I is how I feel about it. But I did definitely think this is an improvement, like you were saying, over the other one. You read my response correctly, um, and we'll see. I mean, clearly they're committed to this, so we'll see how many more of them they have. I would love if they're gonna let's have a word puzzle. Let's do that. You know, like, let's have some of these other things. So they've done a physical challenge. They've done a skill-based thing. So now we'll see what happens next. I liked the puzzle. thought that was cool. It's a shame that more people didn't do it. Um, though yeah. I get why. The um, the proposal, I thought, was sweet. And it was nice that it came, like, that they won. And then he proposed. It's like, you know, let's make the, the trip to Bali our, our honeymoon and... Um, that was a sweet way to do it. I was very concerned for them. I was like, are you seriously going to propose to your girlfriend as you get eliminated? Because, yeah. What did you think about it? any of that other stuff? How are you feeling about the teams right now? Uh, I, I also really liked the proposal. I liked that um, there was this sort of, no, we're going to pause the whole what what place you came in thing because there is a proposal happening. Hurry up and get here because this is something nice that's happening right now um, that's enjoyable so please hurry up so i i I liked that aspect of it um and as for the teams um yeah i don't know anymore um mainly because the challenges are just so weird i keep waiting for team slam dunk just to like 
fall apart. Um, mostly just physically. I just, I'm really, really, really worried about both of them. Um, Wait, slam dunk? Uh, yeah, slam dunk. The NBA team? They were eliminated. Oh, they were eliminated, weren't they? Yeah. Oh. Yeah, see? I was right to be worried. I was thinking of, <laughs> okay. the, I was thinking of like, the ha- one half of the, This is why two hours are bad. Yeah. <laughs> it all um, blends together. It all blurs together. So I, I, I was worried about them. Um, but yeah, so the rest of the teams I'm not sure about um, right now. And I, I really just hope that the Twins just maybe hire drivers for the rest of the time since they can't back cars up, apparently. Yeah. Is that a, is that a difficult thing to do in Europe? Is like putting cars in reverse? Is that difficult? I, I have no idea. I've never driven a car in Europe, so yeah. I wouldn't be able to say. Yeah, I haven't either, but I was really concerned about them with in those regards. Um, is Are, are you feeling like anyone has an edge right now? Um, Not really. It feels very... Well, because yeah. they keep clumping them, so it's hard for anybody to really get out ahead. I still am enjoying the Yaleys. So they're they're my team right now, and uh, yeah. we'll see what happens. I thought I, I loved it was awesome to watch how proud and excited Henry was of Eden when she got that boom in the face and just kept going. You, it was so sweet when she like then he went back to shore and he was basically like, "You're the oh, you're awesome. You're so hardcore and amazing, and you." powered through that and kept going and like that's amazing it was really sweet to see that i always appreciate when you can see because it's always disheartening when you watch these shows and you ask why are you together you are terrible together you bring out the worst in each other and it's really cool to see and the flip side of that where it's like yeah you totally get why these two are together um are a couple and how they uh appreciate each other and the things that that the other person was capable of and maybe even they didn't know that they were but their partner did so i thought that that was really cool yeah it was really cool and that was i i cringed a lot when that happened because i just went how your tooth Uh Uh, uh." but at least at least it got repaired um in uh, between the two legs yeah yeah um, okay, so let's move on to our last show in comedy and reality because we've been talking here for half an hour and we have not yet talked about the premiere of RuPaul's Drag Race All-Stars Season 3. I was a little uh, unenthused, shall we say, about the lineup when I saw it initially posted. Uh, I was pleasantly surprised, though, I have to say. I really enjoyed this first episode and I particularly... I'm enjoying Aja just like I I knew that she would up her game like I could you know I was like I'm glad she's coming back because she's gonna be like a whole new echelon of better um because she she had the goods but she just wasn't wasn't connecting things the way that she needed to to succeed on on all-star on, on RuPaul's drag race you know as opposed to just in the drag scene where she's from I think she's from New York right yeah from Brooklyn so, yeah, so to have her, like, I knew that she would adjust really quickly after her experience on the previous season. And so I'm, you know, I'm enjoying the fact that I was right and that she is and she's doing really well so far. How are you feeling about this premiere and uh, the Queens? Um, yeah, no, I liked the premiere a good bit. Um, and even though I'm not super familiar with most of these, uh, uh, returners, like I know Benda Creme, Aja, and Milk, and those are the three that I've seen their seasons of. Mm-hmm. Um, 
But um, I like all three of them in from what I remember seeing them in their seasons. And so I'm excited to see what the, the three of them do throughout the course of this, depending on how long they stay. Um, and so I liked the idea of them starting with the talent show. And I liked how some of them, like um, Thorgy um, in particular, like did something pretty different but also who else um played an instrument was it trixie 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 yeah it was trixie. she was terrific i thought yeah was, no and i really yeah. i really appreciate that they both did something very different apart from doing a dance routine coupled with a lip sync or just a dance routine um so i was very very happy about that um but immediately of course kate i have to ask you what did you think about thorgy's playing um, Thorgy did a good job. Clearly, uh, they can play. Uh, mm-hmm. They were out of tune on the high stuff. But actually, the fact that they were a little out of tune and still good tone and everything, but just like you know, a little pitchy, um, really emphasized to me the fact that they, this was live. Mm-hmm. You know, and and so that made so while it's like unfortunate that they're kind of out of tune um, for, on some of the high stuff, all the stuff that was really great was terrific just again there's a bunch of queens who are going out there and who are lip syncing and dancing and don't get me wrong to do that well is a terrific skill and it's something that takes a lot of work and a lot of uh, aptitude and talent but to go out and play classical violin the way that Thorgy did is a whole other level like yeah completely a whole other level um, I don't think that she did a great job of adapting violin to the the medium i thought i think yeah. it was very strange she came out and was just playing like straight up classical like that doesn't fit with like how you are dressed i was thinking of like sasha right so if sasha came out and was going to play violin if sasha could play violin like that like they can't um but the outfit would match would be commenting on the fa- the choice of classical and then when they sw- she switched to um the the rue song there would be like have been like a tearaway reveal, different costume or something, and it would have all been much more cohesive. Um, so I think that like starting with like a couple measures of something classical and then going into more of like a live stage show kind of feel to the song or to the piece would have been a much better choice. Um, I am watching, going, okay, respect. That's really hard to do, and and you sound really good doing it. But most people at home aren't because <laughs> those people at home just watched a bunch of other people who were air quotes singing to something that sounded perfect because it was recorded in a studio previously they don't understand what it means to play violin live like that um i'm assuming that it was live uh, and so that <laughs> that's not going to mean anything to them so you're taking this big risk you're doing this really high level thing but for very little effective payoff certainly at, for the viewers at home so i think that it was a it needed a lot more work it was a good concept of for like i'm gonna play the violin because i'm a badass violinist great but that's where you start from like it needed it needed a lot more thought and a lot more cohesion i thought like for me thor thor g was at the in the bottom mm-hmm yeah, like when when they called her name, I was like, "Oh, she's gonna be in the bottom," and that stinks because she's really good at the violin. But it was not what she was doing was not didn't match with what the 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 vibe and the energy of the show was. It was too 
sit back and be respectful, you know, for too long of the segment. So it needed more more work, is my thought. And uh, also, I, I just about had a heart attack when they did a cartwheel while holding a violin. <laughs> no! Dear God, what are you doing? Like, listeners at home, I don't know how good Thorgy's violin is, but, like, someone who's a professional violinist um, uh, will, like, like, if you're... Okay, let's put it this way. If you are in high school, your violin, if it's a decent violin, will cost at least $2,000. At least. And if you are in a music major in college, you will have at least ten to twenty to thirty thousand dollars worth of for just the violin. Maybe more. And you will have like a five thousand dollar bow, maybe. So imagine you're doing a cartwheel with a very, very breakable hand thing in your hand that might be just like like a like a not a great violin because you don't want anything to happen to it. So it might just be several thousand dollars. Or, more likely, because you know you have to sound good, it's a good violin, and it's tens of thousands of dollars. So, <sighs> I'm sorry, I'm laughing very quietly, because I, I can just imagine you just gripping the couch in terror while you were watching that, and going, what are you doing? No! Yeah. And, like, doing a very dramatic reach to the screen to, like, yeah. stop stop it from happening. To oh, save the violin. The- that's the thing that the people watching at home are going like, oh, cool, cartwheel. Awesome. Very, lots, of, like, like, take it up in a level, new, like, you know, theatricality. And I'm just like dying. <laughs> I'm like, ah, none of my students don't get ideas. Don't get ideas from this. Um, so yeah. Anyway, so I, I liked that they complimented and applauded the choice to do the classical thing and the, the idea of bringing those two worlds together. Um, hopefully that's something that, with more thought and more like workshopping, Thorgy can, you know, make a regular part of the show. I also, and again, for me, Trixie was one of the absolute best. I thought that like the whole, again, the outfit and the makeup and the hair and the song and the performance all went together and she sounded beautiful. And the, the, whatever that like lap harp or whatever, um, I yeah. thought it was really lovely. And that one really stood out to me because we know that theoretically they should all be able to lip sync. They should all be able to to do a live show, right? Yeah. They can't all sing like that live. They can't all play an instrument like that live. So for me, that really elevated um, Trixie's. And because Trixie's felt like a complete character persona moment, you know, and Thorgy's was <laughs> a little more uneven. That's sort of yeah. why she's, her stood out to me more. I've monologued for way too long now. Do you have any other thoughts on, on the premiere? Uh, well, I mean, I agree with you up to an extent uh, regarding Thorgy and Trixie. Um, and both, like, I think Trixie gets by for a lot because of what you just described in terms of this this very realized character is up there right now um, playing. And it's calling back to, like, this sort of, like, um, country music moment sort of thing. And so I I think that helps a lot, but I think that your point of like regarding like uh, Thorgy's sort of energy levels in terms of transitioning from a classical piece into Sissy That Walk, um, and then needing like something else to carry it through um, is really valid. Um, and I think, but I also feel like that could have just easily applied to Trixie as well. In that, I mean as well fully realized as Trixie's thing was, it was still also just standing on the stage playing the instrument. 
And so, like, some sort of, like, step-up type of thing, I think, would have been necessary for both of them. And I was waiting for that from both of them. Um, as much as I really enjoyed both performances, and I think I enjoyed, like, Thorgy's whole idea a lot more than you did, um, apart from the uh, the danger that uh, she put the violin in. Um, <coughs> excuse me. Um, the only other person I, uh, like, I'm super curious about how, how everyone else would have felt about Milk's, um, approach to that. Um, particularly the fact that Milk didn't really put together an outfit. Um, as opposed to doing a sort of cardboard cutout, uh, paper doll, um, approach with it. Which I thought was really interesting, and, like, we both know from, like, our previous discussions about RuPaul, I like this sort of more, sort of intellectualized approach to drag. So that kind of thing that Milk's doing there really appeals to me, but at the same time, I also recognize that it's very it felt very safe as a first thing to do like this isn't something that you can do later in the season and get away with it i think but it's something that you can definitely do in the first stage and have it conceptually work with what you're doing for your talent but it's not something that you could get away with because then you're going to get dinged for not putting together anything yeah yeah i I worked for me way more than i thought it would yeah Uh, when i you know, like, and the the different, like, the final, like, moment and look and everything. And I think that is down to Milk selling it. Um yeah. And now we'll see what, what comes next. Yeah. It was very much a middle. You're not going to win with that, I don't think. Yeah. So that was a good, solid double, you know, like, double. <laughs> not going to get home. Not a, not even a triple. Um, so, yeah. We'll see what happens next. Do you think the right person went home? Um, no, um, just based on performance, like, I, I don't think, um, um, McMichaels' performance was particularly good, but I, I think that, um, Shishi's was just less, be- was more bad. Oh, yeah, um, definitely. Than McMichaels, and I think that, um, McMichaels' whole declaration of, yeah, I'm just gonna eliminate whomever I think is the biggest thing just, like, massively just backfired in this regard, and it was... For someone who was just like, I want to, like, really get along, and I really want to make sure that we, like, kind of have a consensus, it's just like, aw, Ben de la Creme, no, you just, you you made a very strategic choice here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, because that's, that's Bendela's whole thing, like, is, is, like, just sweetness and kindness and goodness, but that is not why Morgan was sent home. Like, if, if, yeah. if, if, if Ben was, Ben de la Creme was sticking with her whole, like, be like, well, we all agreed this and you didn't. So I decided it's like, okay, but first of all, y'all didn't agree. I like that Aja, was it Aja who said, that's a great idea, but it's really stupid to say it out loud. Uh, I, I appreciate that. But not only did they not all agree to that, um, but but also it doesn't even follow your own rules. So you're doing the same thing that you accuse them of doing. I do think that Vendela is fully aware of that and it was in character for the tv in that moment um so i do like from what i was seeing i wasn't seeing through that but it makes her look very stupid but i think when in that moment she was choosing between looking stupid or naive or looking mean and she would always rather look stupid or naive than look mean because that's her whole thing so we'll see what comes next well 
what wins your week in comedy and reality, sir? Uh, that's a good question. Um, Top Chef was good, though I'm, like, eagerly awaiting to hear back what you thought about Restaurant Moors. Um, so I think I'll give it to Good Place on the Burrito this week. Um, and I I expect to give it to them next week, too, just because it's a finale, and then I won't be able to give it to them for, like, another season. Uh, what about you? <laughs> it was a strong week. Pretty much everything you know, was 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 at least interesting, and and most of this was really fun. I'm I'm gonna give it to the All Stars premiere. I thought it was a okay. really strong way to kick off the season, and certainly uh, much more interesting than I was anticipating it would be because I wasn't super stoked about most of the queens coming back. So, uh, yeah, I'll give it to All Stars. Now we'll take a break and come back with our weekend genre. week in genre Noel's going to talk about well a bunch of shows because like i said i'm on location i haven't uh i haven't had a chance to watch a lot of stuff so Noel's going to talk about the premiere of counterpart the crossing as well as the most recent episode of, of star trek discovery vaulting ambition which is their penultimate episode then he'll talk a bit about the flash the elongated night rises and we'll both talk supergirl fort Roz, and the x-files the lost art of forehead sweat so first up is counterpart um some people are enjoying this much more uh, than I anticipated. This is the new J.K. Simmons, like, dual alternate realities kind of show. Um, should I check it out? Or are my no. concerns... Okay, yeah. 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 No, I, I mean, did. you saw me tweet about this. Um, no, your concerns were, like, very valid here. Um, uh, so, yeah, I, I, I wanted to like this a lot more than I did, and I like a lot of the ideas that are presented in it, and that this alt-reality just sort of happened, and that there wasn't necessarily, potentially, depending on, like, the degree of information that we're being given, that there wasn't a reason that this happened, and that it just sort of split off during the Cold War. Um, so I really like that concept of it, and I like some of the tension that's that comes apart comes apart comes through really clearly between the two Howards, which are the JK Simmons characters. Um, but um about halfway through the episode I just went, Oh, the only woman talking is the nurse. This is a little weird. Okay. And then like that woman is the only woman who appears on screen that has any dialogue until right at the very end. Um, and that last little moment is supposed to be intended to be sort of a big reveal sort of thing, but it's not because you of who you cast. And I was like, well, where is she? Oh, here she is, type of thing. And it was just, it was very obvious what they were setting up for. And 
yeah so it was i it was it was really tough to watch and just in terms of like oh these are just spies and boy spies playing boy spy games and wanting to defect or like something's going bad on the other side of the alt universe and no one knows who to trust and it's just like oh this is this is boring but at least there's a lady assassin trying to kill all of them that's interesting maybe she'll (laughs) succeed was sort of where i ended up towards the end of the episode (laughs) which is not a great thing um to be by that point um based on the cast list um there are a few more like prominent female characters coming but that first episode just makes me like really antsy about what they're going to be given or the degree of importance they will be allotted um as the show continues um I may check out a couple more episodes just based on the strength of J.K. Simmons' performances. He does a really good job of um, delineating um, the personalities of the two Howards and even like the physicality of the two Howards. It's a really good um, two-part performance. And um, it's... So that's almost enough to carry me, but the writing isn't like super duper compelling um, just yet because, again, a lot of it is in this um, spy craft sort of cloak and dagger intrigue um that makes for good writing on the page but as dialogue it's not necessarily the best thing to listen to for an hour so we'll i'll see how it goes and report back to you but um i'm not entirely convinced that this is worth anyone's time right now okay fair especially because one day at a time is his draft i could be watching that (laughs) so exactly yeah um (laughs) Okay, what about Star Trek Discovery, uh, Vaulting Ambition, and the the uh, reveal of the Emperor, and you know, and all of that drama? How did how did this penultimate episode go? Well, first, not the penultimate. Uh, they have a couple more episodes. Actually, oh, how many do they they're have? Doing a fifteen. Fifteen. They're doing fifteen. Yeah, they're doing fifteen. Okay. So they've got uh, another three episodes to go. Um, I had the same thought because of how this episode ends. Um, so. Like, um, I'll add, like, a big spoiler thing here so I can talk a little more openly. So if you need to skip past to go to the next section of the next chapter for this or skip ahead for a little bit. um, Look in the show notes for the timestamp. Yeah, yeah, do that. And so that I can sort of mention, like, the other big thing that happened here in this episode that happened at the end of it. Um, So first, yes, Michelle Yeoh looks incredible, and she's really good as the Emperor, and it basically explains why in the world she agreed to do this um, in the first place, because she's having a blast. Um, From just a costuming perspective, from a performance perspective, getting to play a villain I think is really something she's enjoying. So I think that she is carrying a lot of the water in this episode. And as we sort of expected, Michelle Yeoh would be doing for this show if she hadn't been killed off in the (laughs) first two episodes. Um, But she's very good here, and she's having a lot of fun, and her um, chemistry with... um, um. Oh, what's her sneak with Martin Brown, Green? Green, yeah. With uh, um, with her is just really phenomenal. Again, um, even in this sort of reversed role sort of capacity here, even though in the mirror universe, um, Yo's character has been 
raising uh, Michael at raising Michael herself as opposed to being raised by the Vulcans. Um, so I, I really like that sort of play on that. So here's the other thing is that Michael realizes that Lorca has been mirror universe Lorca this entire time, which explains why he's been such a militaristic dick the entire <laughs> season. Um, and so that, that was really interesting, even if it was something that, um, they're doing so many double agent things this season that it's sort of intense and insane and maybe a little overboard, but, um, Michael's realization, um, through clips and through real, um, that they do through clips to like make you go, right guys, Hey, you let that line slide by, but no, it was a thing the entire time. Um, uh, sort of like snaps a lot of, um, his behavior into context. Um, I'm not sure it justifies the sort of heavy violence of the, the previous season, uh, previous half of the season, but it at least contextualizes it, um, which is nice. Um, and it, so I'll be curious if we ever run into our universe Lorca, or if I'm, I would just assume that mirror universe Lorca killed uh prime universe um, Lorca when he swapped over, but who knows? Um, so I'll be curious to see how they um, play that off now that we've sort of revealed the like probably season ending big bad. Cause I, I imagine that they're not done with Tyler um, or whatever the Klingon that is inside of him or that he is, is Vok. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, um, good, good sort of setup to go into like the last three, um, episodes. Um, but I'm sort of like, I'm more feeling a little worn by discoveries, plot twists and puzzle boxes. I just kind of want to go, but why can't you guys just do some cool Star Trek stuff as opposed to, yeah, Star Trek, Mirror Universe, AU, yeah, that wasn't explored enough, and it's just, it kind of was, but okay. <laughs> Do you have any thoughts on, didn't, we had Wilson Cruz back in this episode, yes? We did, and it, he was really good in this, um, they were both really good in this um, episode. It wasn't enough to make me go, oh, yeah, no, you guys totally justified snacking, snapping his neck. Um, but their scenes together, um, rap and um, Cruz's scenes together, uh, were really, really good and really touching. And I really liked that they turned back to like them brushing their teeth together and how, for both of them, this was like the best part of the day and like the most perfect moment. I'm a big sap for like the mundane things in life being like the things that you really value. And so I really liked that that came back here. But I also really liked um, Stamets' realization of. Like, no, I need to, like, help and save everyone. As much as I would really like to stay in this existence with you, I have to go and save everyone, even if also by going through and saving everyone, he lets out his Mirror Universe counterpart out of the um, Spore Network thing. And now he's also running around. Um, and I will say this, um, rap is just, like, super... Just physicality, again, playing doubles is, um, he, his mirror universe, Stamets, is just like, seems super comfortable in the whole Terran Empire, vaguely Nazi uniform that he has, and it's very good. And I really appreciated just how very comfortable he seemed in that, but also managed to convey how sort of out of sorts our Stamets was in everything. So I really appreciated, like, the dual performances in this as well. Okay. Cool. Well, I'm looking yeah. forward to that. Uh, 
<laughs> that they they want to really um, earn all the talk they were doing about this is totally some barrier gays. They need to unbury that shit. And if they don't, then no, yeah. you might think it was worth it, but it that's it's still barrier gays. If one of them or two of them end up dead or crazy at the end, so. Yeah. Anyways, okay. Let let let's go to uh, the Flash, the elongated night rises. So I'm guessing it was a very uh, Dibney episode. Yeah, it was very much Dibney coming into his own episode of like really uh, heeding the call of being a hero and accepting that he needs to step up, especially since Barry's um, in prison now. And I just kept going, oh, this is really boring. Mainly because, A, we've sort of, again, we've seen this play out on all of these shows, all of the Arrowverse shows of someone who was maybe either a reluctant hero or sort of a plucky hero, like, embracing that. And this is a very well-worn sort of um, trope within the superhero narratives. Um, But it just, we've, we've just seen it so many times at this point, and on the flash of, like, we believe in you, you can do this, you need to do this, because otherwise people are going to die, sort of thing. Um, so have, going through this again with Dibney just made me go, yeah, but if Wally was here, then we wouldn't have him to be doing this whole, I don't want to be hero because I could get hurt type of mentality, which is what he has, of like, Wally knows what he's signing up for and would be dealing with this in a a way that fit with who he is as opposed to us getting another hero's journey sort of narrative here. Um, the only other thing that I really want to say about Elongate Night Rises is that again, they had another really nice love letters to um, fans of the 1992 flash um, where Trickster, the, the, this show's Trickster breaks out of prison and thanks to his mom helping his mom is the same woman who played prank um on the original flash opposite mark hamill um and so that was again really fun that this show's universe is like continuing to play with that um considering they hadn't done that really really recently um i really liked how that came through here so that was just a little bit of fan service but it was a lot of fun and um so that aspect of it was a good deal of fun but i didn't need a whole the team comes together to help didney like realize his true potential sort of thing because it was just it was very silly um even if it just reinforces how much of a leadership role iris has taken on team flash and i really like that but I can get that with her having these kind of conversations with Wally. So, mm-hmm. meh. Yeah. <laughs> We're still going to be grouchy about that for a while, listeners. Um, okay, let's move on to Supergirl and Fort Ross. I got to say, this one, I think, suffered for me from over-hyping. Uh, I saw mm-hmm. a strong response on Twitter. Uh, people seemed to really like the episode. I I only had time for a couple episodes, so I, I, I watched Supergirl. And I was... Like I thought it was fine. I didn't think it was particularly strong. Um, I liked how how lady centric it was because, of course, the most interesting relationships on the show are the relationships between the ladies. So you know, bringing. But then when I realized that it was oh, they're bringing back Livewire and they're bringing back Petra because I do not know what that character's name is and I do not care. <laughs> it's uh, yeah, I'll grab Black from uh, from Jane the Virgin. Um, and then and then we this opportunity for. Supergirl for Kara to spend some time with Lara, raised Lara, what's her name? Saturn Girl. And all they talk about is Monel. 
Like all any of them talk about is smile, and I don't get it. You, you're it's your only opportunity. It's your first opportunity to talk to somebody from like the distant future, and you're not like, hey, what's life like there? Or so you're from Saturn. Like there's so many fascinating things that they could be talking about. There's so many things that Kara, a journalist, should want to talk to to her new you know colleague at work at least about. And the only thing these writers can think of to have the various women here talk about is Monel. And I'm the person on the podcast who actually is not as anti Monel as so many others. But like, and then at the end, when Kara is talking to um to, to them, and and she tells Monel she did a good job. It's like she's not a child. You're not reporting back to her parents how she did on the field trip. She should say, thank you. You did a good job. As opposed to just addressing in like the third person th- this this new character's husband. Like I was very puzzled as to why this got such a strong positive response from the fan base. Because I thought that they was solid in some of the episode some of the parts of the episodes, but other parts was just a complete waste of, a, of an excellent opportunity. Like you get these two badass here you know heroines who's a big part of their identity is their kindness and their warmth together and that's all they can think of to have them do it was ugh. and and i like this stuff with alex but again it's it's they're so hard they're so like blatantly telegraphing what's coming at the end of the season um that it's it was it's hard for me to really enjoy those scenes because it just i can see them lifting heavy stuff for later and it just like it's so heavily foreshadowed that um that part didn't work as well for me as i as I think it would outside of the context of, guess what, guys? Guess who Kyler Lee's going to adopt at the end of the season when her mom can't keep her anymore? Um, so, yeah, I I was, I thought it was fine. I, I, I'm coming off much more negative about this episode than I actually felt while watching it. And maybe it's colored by a very long week of rehearsal and practice. But, yeah, I wanted this to be much better than it was. I think it's I think it's a really fun episode in terms of um its concept and um its whole sort of breaking into a jail thing is always a fun thing to do. It's the rock in space with ladies. What's not to love? And but your your entire point regarding what Kara and Saturn Girl talk about is just ridiculous. And never ending. It's just like, oh, Monel's back. How do we know Monel's back? Because they won't stop talking about Monel. Um, and again, like I'm someone who really enjoys Chris Wood's performance and um, has generally sort of liked th- how the show conceptualizes Monel, n- not to the extent that the show is just deeply, deeply in love with this character, but that enough that I sort of appreciate sort of the dynamics he brings, but it's all they talk about. In this episode, you're absolutely correct, and it's deeply, deeply frustrating, and it really limited a lot of the fun interactions that you can have when Livewire is even just like, oh, oh, so tell me all how you feel about that, and it's just like, oh, who cares? I mean, we've been doing this for a little while anyway, but it also feels like really aggressively about trying to move them past that conversation that they just decided to spend an entire episode about this so that they wouldn't have to talk about it anymore. Hopefully they never have to talk about it anymore. They're totally going to talk about it some more next week. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
and so th- it was so yeah that was really frustrating um but i was really glad um uh yael was back as um i want to say her character's name is sai i'm like 80 percent sure it's just sai um and i was glad that she had like more dialogue and more stuff to do rather than just stare while a special effects wave emanated from her forehead um so i enjoyed that um but yeah overall i was i enjoyed the episode while i was watching but as soon as i got done i just kind of went wait there's a lot of stuff that i wasn't like super into oh that's frustrating yeah okay it was kind of how i ended up with four draws so i feel you on everything and the conversation we see car having at the end with monal about whether you know, villains can be saved or can be redeemed and all this stuff is really frustrating to me because they talk about, you know, like this idea that, well, Livewire was as bad as they come and you brought her back around. You got her to die for you. So c- good job. That's how you know you succeeded in helping her become a better person because she killed her. <laughs> she, she like jumped in front of a thing. She died so that you could live. So that means good job. You succeed. Like that was a very strange thing i think way to to put that and to not acknowledge that okay i got her to open up to other people and she's dead because of it should like ping with the conversations that car has been having all season about does she is she supergirl or is she car is she human or is she alien um and they glaze right over that and it's also this idea that like she only has merit as a as a like an ally if she dies why couldn't they have that not kill her? It was just like a blast. You know, like have her race her back to the med bay. They have that like super fantastic med technology. And then yeah. I don't think they needed to kill her. And I think the fact that they did kill her, like that her choosing good killed her, uh, should have been a more dramatic element. Or like, or they should have cut back to Fort Ross and she's in the computer at Fort Ross or something. Yeah. Which they could still do. But I, I thought it was very strange to, like, just kind of jump around that part. Like, don't worry, you'll get through to rain. She'll die to save you, too. I mean, come on. Because we all know she's going to die to save her daughter, probably. Yeah. Yeah, probably. Almost certainly. <laughs> Anyways, um, any other thoughts on Supergirl? Nope. Okay, let's kick, kick it over to the X-Files and the Darren Morgan episode for this season, The Lost Art of Forehead Sweat. I, You know how much I love Darren Morgan episodes. Um, I, I thought that the one last season was terrific and warranted like the production of the entire season, most of it crappy, maybe not that super racist one. Um, but just so that we could experience the the where where something, curse of the where human, or I don't remember what it was called, but it was the one <laughs> that was super funny yeah. last year. Um this this year we get like we get Brian Husky uh, in the Reese Darby role, um, which I was, they're both delightful. Don't make me choose. Um, but it was, it was super fun, uh, playing with the Mandela effect and like, like the Bernstein. The Mingala effect, Kate. The Mingala effect. <laughs> um, yeah, I thought it was super fun. It's gotten to you. I still love it. Like, I still love these episodes and I apparently am here for it all day long. I thought it was terrific. Um, though maybe not as meaningful and not as like, uh, emotionally evoking of a response. It didn't prompt as an emotional of a response as the one last year did, but I still really like this episode. What did you think? I really liked it as well. Um, I liked the whole 
dismissal of alternate universe of like no that's that's stupid stop stop <laughs> stop stop and so i really i really appreciated that aspect of it um i always like when x-files allows both anderson and duchovny to be funny and duchovny really goes heavy on the broadness in this episode but it's very good broadness like you mentioned his line reading of confused the twilight zone and the outer limits do you even know me um but also his like whole fainting thing at the end um was very good as well um the 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 main reason that i think that this episode works really well though is that it's a really solid sort of send up of what i feel like a lot of like the premiere was about and this whole sort of we don't know what truth is anymore. We live in a post-truth thing of like, and Trump's terrible, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And this episode's just like, yeah, he is, and yes, it is. And we should be making fun of this instead of embracing this as a plot device for ourselves and our very serious mythology, Chris, is what this episode feels like of a of a response to everything that's like come before it and everything that's going to presumably come after if the promo is any indication of like, yep, we didn't learn a lot at all um and so i really appreciated that and it's a very funny sort of way for them to engage a lot of the, again like false news and post-truth society and what a fact is anymore and all of that sort of like memory recall of knowing what something is i really appreciated that and how it's presented in this really humorous silly way as opposed to this really kind of voiceover ponderous way and to the point where they have a character named dr they to justify everything that's been going on so far it's just it's very good it's very smart it's very clever and i really really enjoyed it i really like the makeup for dr they yes just that like yeah, red around the eyes good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was terrific, and, and and it was the pacing of the episode. I think was really uh, tight. Like it kept moving along. There's not a lot of there there, so they kept moving yeah. it, it, it so that you didn't notice, which I thought worked very well and maybe better than it should if you just wrote it out on paper. Um, I thought that like you mentioned Duchovny, Jillian Anderson doesn't really get much to do in this one, but like even just that opening scene. Of Duchovny, like coming in from squatching, and he's like, he he has this like, like soliloquy like dialogue at the top. The way that you know they like to give Duchovny soliloquies on the X Files, uh, talking about you know getting away from the buzz of day to day life and all the headaches and all this other thing, and just getting out of a person in a feel like. But it's it's tinged just enough into comedy while also being completely deadpan and he's completely like Mulder's completely insincere but Duchovny is tweaking his performance of that just enough that it works really well in the tone of this episode um yeah and I, and I continue to really enjoy how they're working Duchovny and Anderson's chemistry and like how they're putting them together like the idea that they're an old married couple that aren't really together, but they are, but they aren't, you know, I think is really fascinating and fun. And it lets this really comfortable, easy dynamic, uh, just kind of be at the fore in their relationship. And, and that, that lets them avoid like a serious, we are a couple scenes. It doesn't really completely change the show, but it also doesn't deny all the other stuff that they've been through together. And that like the way that a relationship has developed over these years and decades off screen um so i I've, i really enjoyed that aspect of it too and i think that's that's all 
here. It's very apparent here. What did you think of Husky and of Reggie? <laughs> I really liked Husky and Reggie. And I feel like this episode, and I wrote it down in the document, Kate, is like, we have like early contender for good montages already. And I wrote it down in the document. It is there. I will remember <laughs> when we get to this at the end of the next year, at the end of this year, provided we're all still here. Yeah. And um, so I, I really enjoyed like his whole, the fact that the office space does not change between like the post office, <laughs> the NSA yeah. and the department of defense. Like I really appreciated that sort of, a cost saving thing, but B also just this idea of a shuffling bureaucracy playing into this. So I really liked that aspect of it. And I really liked him, them editing him into a number of episodes. Um, just, it was very good. And I really liked, um, how they got him into that. So I, I really enjoyed Husky and Reggie. And I even liked the fact that they were just like, Oh no, real quick. We need to pause to do the theme song with Reggie in it. And I just went, this is so ridiculous. I am here for this so badly right now. And it will surprise no one that uh, it won my week in genre and drama because it was that in Supergirl and I didn't like Supergirl. So, but, but that's not why it won. It won because I really enjoyed this episode. And if you haven't seen it, listeners, you should just go seek it out. You don't need any context. You can just watch this episode and have a good time. Yep. Uh, what wins your week in genre, Noel? Oh, same thing. Uh, it was the lost art of forehead sweat. Yeah. Uh, a few show notes here at the end of the episode. You can find a post of this episode over at theteleverse.org, which is the website for the podcast. You can email us, theteleverse at gmail.com, and reach out there. You can like our page on Facebook, start up a conversation there. You can find us in iTunes with an M4A chaptered feed and an MP3 unchaptered feed. Leave us a rating or review. We'd appreciate hearing from you. We're also up in Stitcher. Same thing there. And of course, they're both on Twitter. I am at the Televerse and Noel, you are? At Noel RK. And now we're going to welcome back to the show, friend of the show, Corey Barker of TPGuide.com to talk about the 25th anniversary in the 25 years of WWE Raw. We'll be right back after this. We have a, a surprise for you. We got you a little something. Okay, now, this isn't just from Shane and I. It isn't just from everybody here in the Barclays Center in Brooklyn or everybody in the Manhattan Center. This is from people all over the world because Shane and I started a GoFundMe account to have this for you. Dad, we present you with this commemorative plaque for 25 years of Monday Night Raw. It's mahogany. It's a plaque. It's a... It's a plaque. Plaque. It feels, it feels a little cheap. It feels cheap, but then again, we are here in Brooklyn. me a plaque after all I've done for you for 25 years and you give me wow you give me a plaque everybody's out here thanking everybody oh thank you oh, thank you thank you oh thank you oh, thank you thank you thank you the only person in the world I need to thank is me because I did it all I did it all by myself I didn't need any of you. I didn't need my family members. I didn't need anyone but me. No one. There's not one person in the world that's ever helped me. I see the look in your eye. 
since you and I have been in the ring together. And a lot of things have changed. You look great. Uh, but obviously, Mother Nature has not been too kind to me. What I'm trying to say is, Steve, times have changed. Uh, I'm now a senior citizen. But I'm a senior citizen, but Shane changed in his prime. back with the televerse this is kate Kozlik joined as ever by noel kirkpatrick and this week on the dvd shelf it's not it's just it's not really the dvd shelf it's a special segment uh we're excited to welcome back friend of the show from tvguide.com Corey barker Corey, welcome back guys thanks for having me i'm so excited to talk about a show that has run forever and will run until long after all three of us are dead supernatural <laughs> <laughs> that one too uh, but no, this week we're talking about the WWE Raw, which is having or has had by the time this goes up uh, its 25th anniversary special because that's right, everyone. WWE Raw has been on the air for 25 years and aired an insane number of episodes. And it's really interesting and fascinating. And we're going to talk about it. And I can't wait. Um, so first up, Corey uh, and also Noel, what what are your guys' relationships with WWE Raw like, and with wrestling? Is uh, Corey, is this something I'm guessing you, you have a stronger connection to? Noel, I don't know if you've watched any wrestling. Have you watched any wrestling? I've watched some wrestling. Uh, really, my first experience was watching a pay-per-view WrestleMania uh, when I was in... Uh, I was an undergrad or grad, or late in undergrad, early in grad school. I think it was early in grad school. Um, a professor of mine hosted a wrestling party and I went and I think that was my first time watching any sort of, in a sustained way, watching, uh, professional wrestling. And, um, so that was maybe 10, 11 years ago at this point. Um, I'd have to go back and look. But that was really my most sustained sort of like watching of it. But like through pop culture osmosis, like I'm familiar with a number of the personalities from uh, professional wrestling throughout the years, basically starting with like Hogan and Macho, Macho Man and those folks. But I've never been a deep engaged fan of the uh, of the prop of the properties. So, yeah, it's it's something I'm familiar with only through osmosis. Well, I would have to say that my relationship with wrestling is a uh, a very toxic one, and b <laughs> uh, the wrong, longest relationship of my life outside of my relationship with my parents, probably, and like my grandmother, I guess. Um, I have been a a deep, deep 
deep wrestling fan uh, for as long as I can remember, probably very seriously since about 1993 when Raw started. Um, I don't really recall watching Raw for a few years uh, until I was a little bit older, but I was definitely watching uh, WWE programming. It was WWF at the time, which we may get into. Um, in 1993, when Raw premiered, I was I was probably more likely watching their Saturday morning show, which used to be kind of the predominant place on the schedule that they had before raw which we may also get into but yeah i wrestling as noel can attest due to our extensive nearly daily uh google hangouts conversation is is something that's very near and dear to my heart despite the fact that um it constantly lets me down it constantly frustrates me um in a way that no other television show scripted or unscripted really really could that's interesting um I'm in between the two of you because uh, I've watched way more Raw than than Noel uh, and nowhere near as much as you have, Corey. I have two older brothers. Uh, so I yeah. watched a significant amount of Raw during the Attitude Era, as I now know that it is called. And mm-hmm. uh, I... Was so I, I was very familiar with parts of of what we watched. So preparing for the segment, Nolan and I went back and watched the first ep- ever episode. We watched some of the other ones um, over the course of you know kind of just picking episodes going throughout the run of the show, the the now twenty five year run of the show. And it was like it was really interesting for me, especially as I was thinking about you know the different perspectives we would bring into the segment how strongly I was immediately back in the storylines from the time periods that I watched. I remember them vividly. I remember like a significant like branching arcs of the years of, of raw that I watched not like regularly or religiously, just enough to be familiar, you know? Um, Whereas then I would get to the more recent episodes or the, the earlier episodes and just be completely disengaged (laughs) <laughs> unless it was a particularly compelling uh match or or storyline um but no i remember in high school um uh, i i would cuz of course i was a staunch defender of buffy and other shows like that and i would also defend wrestling and i would also use wrestling to defend buffy cuz i would tell my brothers it's like you realize this is exactly the same <laughs> as buffy or soap operas there's just more fighting and they're most of them aren't as good of, of actors, but it's exactly the same. And then people would dis, dis wrestling, and I'd be like, "It is exactly the same as soap operas, only there's badass fight scenes every week yeah. live." And the notion that it's fake was always so absurd to me. It's like, okay, it took me a while to figure out that the whole thing was scripted, but they're really doing all of this. So that that just like they still are doing all of these things. It's amazing physical achievement. So, um, yeah, I, I was. I, I'm, I'm looking forward to this conversation because, because again, I was right back in with the Stone Cold 316, with Rocky, with Undertaker and Mankind. I'd forgotten about Dude Love though, um, and like so, so that kind of era of the show. I was remembering Degeneration X and Christian and Edge and the Hardy Boys, and Lita showed up in a couple that I watched. I was like, yeah, Lita, you're awesome. So I was surprised to find that I still had such a strong connection to the particular eras of the show that i had seen so does that mean that stone cold is buffy or is the (laughs) rock buffy (laughs) well uh stone cold uh is definitely not buffy i think stone cold is more faith if you're gonna Mm -hmm. 
you know, make a connection there. But um, I, I think that's a breakdown that we'll have to do another time because otherwise we'll get too deep into the woods. But um, but no, it like, and that also for me leads to another conversation that we I think we gotta have, and I'd like to have it up at the top here, and that is going back and watching these episodes and diving in with Raw. Um, I was I was like really shocked by just how horrifically racist especially the premiere is it gets better as you go on but it's still there there's still a really strong thread of racism that i did not remember as being so pronounced in the attitude era um and that is just like it's it felt like as i went chronologically it was really bad and then it got better and then it got worse again um and it's really disheartening and it's not just in the scripting and the like the heel turns and such but it's also in just the the culture of wrestling and in a lot of these individuals and i bring it up because you mentioned is stone cold buffy no steve austin is not buffy because steve austin beat his wife and is very racist uh so i this is something that i cannot divorce in my mind from any discussion of wrestling because it's not just the characters and the writing of these characters on tv is crafted in such a way as to be racist and offensive um particularly pronounced with the villains but just in general but it's also a lot of the actual uh, personalities and like actors and producers and people involved in wrestling in you know in their outside lives also have severe (laughs) allegations of racism and other horrible things as well um so i felt like i needed to mention murder yeah that too uh needed to mention it up at the top do you have any thoughts on this Corey? yeah i mean i think the being a wrestling fan requires you uh to do a lot of kind of internal uh searching oftentimes um even thinking about the racial representation the the treatment of women uh historically um that has only really improved in any way uh in the last two and a half three years and there's a lot of reasons for that some of which being you know the popularity in broader culture of female athletes and so wwe saw that as a promotional opportunity um the just internal politics of uh the mcmahon family in particular uh you know uh vince mcmahon's wife linda is part of the trump cabinet i didn't I mean, Trump was sort of a, a looming figure in a couple of the episodes I passed along, but, you know, Trump was a main part of WWE storyline for like a year. So the politics of wrestling are really gross. The culture of wrestling is really gross. Um, and I think oftentimes that requires people who watch it, who maybe have slightly different politics than the people who are in it and make it uh, to really have to wrestle with whether or not they're okay with that and, in certain instances, you're not in any way, shape, or form. Um, and you really have to think about, do I divorce performer from character, storyline from reality? But the thing that's so complicated about wrestling, as Noel and I have talked about the last couple of weeks of preparation for this, is that perhaps the most alluring thing about wrestling is how it blurs the lines between character yeah. And real human being fiction, you know, scripted storyline and reality, quote unquote. And so trying to pull those things apart is impossible and is like purposely impossible. Like the whole point is to get you all turned around in your head 
so that you're intrigued. Even if you're pissed off, like some people in WWE, maybe even Vince McMahon would say, great, you, you've, you've given them a reaction and that's all that matters. No, do you have any thoughts? Uh, well, I mean, given the sampling that I watched and also Corey filling me in on stuff, um, I, I agree that I think a lot of it is the fact that they want you to get so entwined that you're sort of like wanting to like pull it apart just a little bit so that you can find a way to keep watching in a lot of ways. And I think that's really clever. And I think that's really, it speaks to the large degree in which McMahon and his family come from like this long line of promoters and they're always finding new ways to keep you roped in in some ways. And even when you're not necessarily a big fan of it, because like Kate, when you were talking about like the premiere, it was just like, Oh gosh, the depictions of this, the sumo wrestler are just terrible and all the fat jokes are just really bad and they're just endless. <laughs> and the, the musical sting a, that they put in there every the time they sting, talk about him. Yeah. The premiere also has this extended Mike Tyson riff that just, I don't know why it's there at all. Um, and it, it's, it's very awkward and it's very weird, but at the same time, because like Kate mentioned, like, these are really, for the most part, generally very charismatic performers in a lot of ways. Um, just even putting aside like the sheer amount of athleticism that's required to do all of this, a lot of them are deeply charismatic, and you're drawn to them and the personalities that they've um, that they and uh, the WWE have constructed around them. And so, yeah, it gets really sort of like it gets sticky, and like. Tearing that apart, I think, is where like a lot of the the whole you guys know wrestling's fake, right? I think comes from is like, yes, no, obviously it's fake, but because of that weird overlap of what's legit to borrow, that's the right word, right? Legit. Sure, that's a good word. In yeah. wrestling parlance, in the carny language, yeah, it would be what's a shoot. Shoot okay. means real. Okay. So like that kind of stuff. And how that ends up like you you and I have like you said that you and I have discussed and how that feeds into their narratives, but also how it feeds into their actual like performance personalities. It's just it's really fascinating. And I think that's why people get really excited about it. But it also, as you were telling me, Corey, it's also how the fan culture has shifted really significantly recently with how they engage the show and the properties and how they, what they expect of the, what they, what they expect of the programming. Yeah. I mean, I think it's far more progressive and, you know, politically correct than it was in 1998 and 1993. And certainly before that. Um, but I think that there's this constant push and pull between, you know, there still is kind of those fundamental base beliefs and more even just kind of emotions. I think if if you, you know, dig into some of the sort of, you know, old creative types or performers and things like that who talk about the psychology and the creative aspect of developing individual matches and long time long term storylines, you know, wrestling is this place where like the fundamental kind of narratives that we tell about culture kind of get played out on this big stage. And so, you know, some of the most evocative storylines in, you know, dating back to the 60s, 70s and 80s are the, you know, now would be the most racist things that you could ever think of. Um, and it's, so it's kind of hard to filter that stuff out, even as we move in, into 2018, you know, to the point where pretty regularly now there, there are still characters 
who fans like me who would say that they are liberal and progressive and whatever um, enjoy that are complete stereotypes and occasionally kind of wrestle with those stereotypes, but more often than not, just personify them. And I think the way the WWE views it is that if the people who believe in that stereotype like that, then they like it. And if the people who don't like it get mad and kind of complain about it online and still engage with it, like the way that they would say it is any heat is good heat, like you're engaged. So that that's all they really care about. And they sort of assume that that is a way to keep you interested, even if they never pay it off and have racist characters get their comeuppance or have, you know, sort of sexist portrayals, you know, sort of faded away. Like that's still an undercurrent no matter what, even into 2018. You guys are both way nicer about this than I am then because there's it's complete bullshit. There's no need for it. And the reason that it persists is because they allow it to persist. What the reason, oh, yeah, for sure. There's absolutely no need for that for, to be a part of the culture of wrestling at this point. Like you can't change the history of the sport. You can't change the depictions that have been happening up until this point. But unless this has changed in the past few years, there's never been a black WWE champion. And it's not like they don't have athletes who are good enough or charismatic enough that can really, that they, they that they are worthy of that title. It's because they haven't chosen to elevate those people. When Who wins the fight is scripted? <laughs> then you can't yeah. say, well, there's just not been anyone good enough. And yes, The Rock uh, is of, uh, he's, he's biracial and of, you know, in some part African descent as well as Samoan. And so, like, you could make the argument of The Rock. But... When when you look at who is even allowed to have title matches and who is not, like it's ridiculous that 25 years into WWE Raw, you've never had people of color, aside from The Rock, be consistent contenders for the top prizes. And that's shifting right now, right, with Reigns? Yeah, I mean, but he is, you know, the, the yeah. one, he's, you know, of Samoan descent, and that's... Uh, in wrestling, there's this like immense sort of Samoan DNA and culture. So there's been actually a number of people of Samoan heritage who have had major titles and have been major angles like Reigns, um, like The Rock, who, you know, that's also sort of part of his background. Um, but the portrayal of African-Americans in particular has always been very, very bad um, and consistently, you know, a problem that people critique the WWE for and I think it's it's similar to not to pass the buck but it's it's similar to much of Hollywood where very few of the people who are in decision making positions are people of color you know and even in the WWE there are very few people who are like a McMahon or, or not a McMahon or, or not related to a McMahon or inside the McMahon inner circle and who have been there for 25 years you know and I think that 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 that's a severe problem that they I think that they in some ways get away with as far as the championships go because they've sort of improved representations in certain places. But it's often it's often very much like this sort of post-racial kind of performance where right now there are a few African-American characters named the New Day, who is this trio that's probably the most consistently popular group in the company for the last few years. All three black guys, supremely popular. Um, but, you know, their success is constantly pitched as 
they as individuals worked really hard and went to Vince and kind of told them, told him, this is what we want to do when he saddled them with a gimmick where they were basically all sort of, you know, like African-American preacher characters and sort of, you know, Southern spiritual Baptist types who were talking about positivity and, you know, sort of preaching to the audience and people hated it because it was so stereotypical and racist, but there's not any kind of conversation about what led to that initial decision other than like, oh, that's just Vince with a bad idea. It's like, no, that's Vince because he's an old racist, right? And he thinks that that's what's going to be popular. And then their success is pitched as they worked hard and they were creative. So they're like an exception, not part of a structural racial problem that pervades the entire culture of the company. And it's also who you hire and what you support in your culture throughout your company. And there's enough rumblings of... You know, people who have left the WWE talking about being, you know, having racial epithets epithets uh, thrown at them while they're working out and other things going on at the company that it's it's not just a McMahon-only problem. This is a thing that they've allowed to fester throughout the company for decades. And if it was important to them, they would fix it. And it's not. So they don't. Yeah, I would agree with that. I would 100% agree with that. Now that we, we've had, you know, some of this conversation, I don't want to have our entire time talking about Raw be, you know, the discussion of just the racial politics that you could do a really great, I'm sure there are great wrestling podcasts out there that have done like entire series looking at uh, the, the, the complicated uh, depictions uh, of, and sometimes not complicated, of, of race in wrestling. Um, we are going to move on. I'd also important to mention there's a lot of really screwed up misogyny in in this as well in in depictions that unfortunately is starting to change somewhat in how uh WWE is branding itself um but i i guess what i'd like to talk about next uh, if you guys don't mind moving to the next part of our conversation is the structure and what makes what what has made for the longevity of raw um what Corey, let's start with you why do you think this show is still on the air 25 years later and why do you think it's going to be around for a a lot longer (laughs) well i think the much like a soap opera though you know in some ways i think that comparison is fair and reductive in some ways because it places wrestling in this kind of lower tier of culture that soap operas also don't belong in i think that they the structure exists in such a way that it can it just never has to stop like there are always reasons for two people to fight each other right and they can come up with the the basic reason of you disrespected me the basic reason of like you know you moved my bag in the locker room to deep-seated you know corporate issues that then manifest on the screen um and i think that that you know pro wrestling as a industry has existed for decades before raw and i think what's been so successful about raw is that they've been able to consistently take small things that have happened in culture or respond to things that are happening in the media industries writ large and just kind of tinker. You know, I think the the difference between the 1993 episodes and the 2018 episodes in some ways is not that drastic other than the fact that one is one hour and one is three hours. Um, But I think that they, you know, they constantly innovate whether that's you know, doing a little bit more serialization or for stretches doing kind of just standalone episodes. And the kind of the push and pull between that means that it can kind of go on in perpetuity with no questions asked unless, 
you know, the audience just completely disappears. Which isn't likely to happen, considering, like, you were mentioning that uh, Fox is, like, angling to pick them up in some capacity to fill in time slots uh, (laughs) once Disney acquires them, if they acquire them. Yeah, Um, I mean, if anything, like, in the modern context, like, they're a known property that has a very rigid production practice that only they know how to do but they can kind of deliver a consistent audience that people like that they have people engaged in social media they have sort of multi-screen experiences what have you and so if you're a network or a channel the wwe and raw is kind of a value property because you kind of know what you're going to get and so like in an industrial context it's probably its value is going to increase because of the just basic rhythms and formula that they have down to a science well and right. this show is often live it's like it, live tv yeah. like th- th- yes. it's it's a very rare thing at this point and it's incredibly compelling yes i'm sure there's lots of people who dvr raw and watch it later just like there are people who dvr various you know sporting events we're coming up to the olympics soon um that'll be another case of that but there's a special uh draw for live especially sports that people want to be able to experience in that moment together and when they've put a lot of energy into their dual screen experiences into their social media and and into making sure that is a desirable thing for their fan base to do that they got to watch it live and so in a you know increasing in in hashtag peak tv you know um live tv and weekly live tv and weekly two to three hours of live tv that's gonna just get more and more valuable yeah, I mean, that you know, the other TV show, SmackDown, which airs on Tuesdays for two hours a week, so they actually have five hours of live programming every week, uh, didn't used to be live, used to be taped, and USA, it wasn't on USA either, it's bounced around from UPN to CW to My Network TV to Sci-Fi, USA, two or three years ago now, was so hard up for live programming that they knew that people would tune into, that they went to the WWE and said, Please do SmackDown Live. Please do it on Tuesdays. And we'll, you know, give you a brand new time slot in primetime. USA was the reason that Raw has expanded from one hour to two hour to three hours. So clearly there's an industry, you know, demand there, even if maybe they don't, you know, the the constant refrain with wrestling is that it doesn't attract the, you know, the most quality of advertisers. So that's kind of the stigmatization that it gets. But you know, their TV deals are lucrative. People are constantly, you know, in negotiations with them to expand, do different things. This week, they just debuted a Facebook live show. So, you know, (laughs) just in time, just in time. Yeah. And I think, you know, like they, they know for as reductive and frustrating and racist and awful as they can be as from a business perspective, they, get it and if that's mcmahon or if that's the people that are around him they have been at the forefront of so many things going all the way back to you know being live on cable and having things like that years and years ago and doing pay-per-view and all that stuff so from like a technological and industrial perspective they're at the forefront of a lot of the things that happen in the media industries yeah and i think that's that i think it sort of answers your question kate about why they a have been able to survive on but b why they will continue to thrive is that they're just insanely like media savvy it seems like and in terms of industrial practices but also in terms of like fan engagement i mean we watched an episode where they're just like 
send us your wedding well wishes on tout and i was like what the fuck is tout oh man i could go i could go six hours on tout see exactly is this like a proprietary video thing that they came up with it was not proprietary. It was okay. a startup, and they they were a primary investor. It was like pre Instagram Snapchat blow like kind of blowing up. It was right after they really embraced. They were a little slow to Twitter, and then when they saw people kind of live tweeting, then they they embraced it like too much, and were just like <laughs> saying Twitter like six thousand times in a two yeah, hour. Yeah, I think episode. that happened in one episode. That yeah. yeah, and then so they did that with Tout as well, and it just died because the culture at large like went to Instagram and Snapchat, and then mm-hmm. they were like, oh no, Tout, and even certain people, certain on screen characters, uh, Daniel Bryan, for instance, in his new role as a authority figure constantly talks about how he's going to deliver like special messages on tout just to <laughs> you know, make fun of the fact that tout was this failed investment for the company well, but they're willing to take those kind of risks and but they they're also a lucrative enough but be nimble enough by not being a major media conglomerate that even when they have something fail they're just like eh, okay and it doesn't seem like a huge like ordeal or like crisis within the company that tout didn't work yeah i mean they as you know if you think about this sort of brief history of some of the things that they've done i mean you know the very first episode of raw uh for a long time raw they were running very much in the red and eventually kind of turned that around for a number of different reasons but at the first raw in the background you may have seen these big banners for ico pro yeah that was a that was a supplement company that mcmahon was a primary investor in that he initially promoted on his other television show the world bodybuilding federation he tried to turn bodybuilding into like a scripted sort of narrative in the late 80s early 90s that was a failure he then did the xfl as we all know that was a colossal failure but it's coming back and he's dead set on doing it again because he's a racist and he's going to make the players stand for the national anthem. And then his best friend Trump can be like, thank you. Um, but even when that fails again, it won't matter. It won't affect yeah. the WWE. Yeah, it's really it's interesting. This blend of savvy and, and ahead, like at least wanting to be on the forefront and then being so completely backwards in other yes. elements of the that's, show. That's it really exactly is the best way to describe it. Um, yeah. Vince McMahon is the smartest person in so many contexts. And then like the dumbest, most backwards, awful person in other contexts. And that constant push and pull is what is almost like, is like personified by the WWE product where Certain weeks, Raw is unbelievable. Your your reaction as a super fan is euphoric. It's like they figured it out. They're going to pay off this storyline that they dropped three years ago. And oh, my God. And then the next week, they basically come out and they just give you the middle finger and they move on to something. And that something is like a racist portrayal of, you know, Mexican-Americans or something like that. And you're like, yeah, that makes sense. That's exactly <laughs> right. That's WWE. Yeah. Hmm. Let's talk here quickly before we run out of time uh, about some of the other transitions over the course of the 25 years. I, like watching the pilot or the first episode, it wasn't a pilot, um, of of the show, of Raw, I was really struck by a few things. I didn't realize that, of course, they'd had 
different TV, their Saturday show going for a while. So I was very struck that the very opening of the first episode feels so straight, like so typically raw. Like the, you, you get the interviewer and then the person who's pretending that they aren't on camera <laughs> and then they transition yes. over the course of the conversation to directly addressing the camera and they do it shockingly seamlessly. Uh, so that was kind of fun to see that already just in the DNA of the first episode. Um, we've already talked about the racial politics of the first episode, but one of the other things that really struck me is how in just the first, like, handful of years, the 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 shift in your abilities, the abilities required to be one of their stars, the mic skills got so much better so quickly because they're very bad in that first episode. Like, the wrestlers... They're trying to feed them lines, and they're just they're talking very slowly. They are probably reading cue cards, and it's it's not good. I don't think it's a coincidence that we've had so like a surprising number of uh, actors and uh, comedic presences come from WWE into film uh, and TV because you have to be incredibly physical, and you have to be you have to think on your feet, be uh, be an improviser, basically. To do all the physical stuff. But you also, if you're going to have any level of acclaim, you got to be able to hold the audience. You got to read a room. You got to have fabulous timing. And you got to be able to deliver your lines live every single week. It's really, really hard to do. It's a very specific skill set. And so it was interesting to track the progress of that over the course of the 25 years of the show. Yeah, and I mean, I think to to speak to what you were kind of going with there, I mean, you also have to be able to deliver it in such a way that if it is completely scripted and weirdly, your sort of observation is accurate, but the kind of from a backstage and creative perspective, the reverse is true. So mm-hmm. in the 90s, things were very much not scripted. And today they are scripted like an episode of designated survivor. Like they have they have to go out there and say the exact thing that they've been given. They have a writer's room and all of that stuff. But you have to go out there and deliver it as if it's completely natural. And if you forget, you have to be able to kind of bounce off of that. So the idea that you not only have to perform and hold a live audience, but you have to deliver what is essentially a script in such a way that seems completely real, you know, that it's just coming from the top of your head. And I think that that is one of the most underrated things about pro wrestling as an art form. And, you know, in the in the kind of late 2000s era, they would constantly do guest hosts and they would bring in, you know, basically they turned it into kind of like a late night variety show that aired in primetime where if somebody had a new movie coming out on Friday, then they would often come and host Raw and they would get in the ring and cut a bad, bad promo. And so many actors who you would respect and still even respect would get up there in the middle of the ring and you could just see it in their face like, Oh my God, there are 18,000 people here. (laughs) It's live TV and I do not have an alternate take. Like, and constantly they would mess up and the wrestlers would have to help them or sometimes call them out or make fun of them or whatever. Um, I haven't been live theater since college. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) You know, like one of the famous examples real quick was like Jeremy Piven, um, you know, who's uh, awful. But this is like 2007, 2008 at like the height of Piven mania, basically. Uh, and he gets out there and it, an upcoming pay-per-view SummerSlam, which is the second biggest pay-per-view it's coming up. Everybody's saying SummerSlam in the ring. And then he's like, you know, blah, blah, blah. I'll see you at Summerfest or something like that. And, <laughs> and you know, everybody in the arena is just like, you know, if I recall correctly, and maybe I'm wrong, they, at the 
crowd, as they often do when people mess up, chanted you up over and over and over again. Um, And so constantly people who would come from Hollywood would do interviews after or wrestlers would say they talked to them or whatever. And they would say like, yo, this is way harder than I thought. And they would say like, yeah. And we do it literally 52 weeks a year, multiple times a week in front of cameras, in front of live audiences. And there's no second takes ever, you know? Mm-hmm. That's why I gave serious props to Stephen Amell when he re- recently, you know, did a couple guest appearances, you know, because yes, they gave him a ridiculous uh, thing that he, pers- or a wrestler he was playing off of, a very, very camp, shall we say, persona that he was playing off of. But he, he delivered on the physical stuff and he, he was, just, you could tell that he was a good fit. Like he did Amel's a much better have job. A second career as an independent wrestler. Corey and I are very convinced of this. <laughs> yeah, he's he's ready for air to be over so he can make like five thousand dollars a night by getting thrown through a table and people chanting "Holy shit!" over and over. And it's gonna be great. <laughs> he's gonna love it. Well, it's why I was also not surprised when the first time The Rock did SNL and he crushed it. He was he did a really good job uh, because of course there's there's a very transferable skill set there. Absolutely. Yeah. Do you have any thoughts on this, Noel? Yeah, no, I, I think a lot of it just goes back to what you, you were saying about the skill sets and everything and why it's so underrated. And Corey's point about all these Hollywood folks coming in at that time and going like, oh, we don't know what to do. This is really weird. This is this isn't this isn't what I'm used to. Give me my agent back on the phone. Um, and I, I, th- I think that also speaks to sort of the enduring legacy and why when we're talking about things of like live TV being so compelling. And that's, I think, a lot of the reason why, like when we're talking about like, oh, right, well, there's plenty of live sports on TV that covers your live television sort of fix. And it's just like, no, this is live theater that you're getting to watch for five hours a week. And there's always something really compelling because something can go wrong or you can feel the energy even watching um, even watching it like years later through their website. You can feel the energy of the crowd just really come in. And when the crowd is very much on board with someone or when they're not on board with someone or when they're just not on board with the entire thing that is happening like they were when um, you had us watch one of the, epi- the episode immediately after um, Daniel Bryan um, won. And yes. the the sh- the crowd was just chanting his name constantly even during a very good tag team match that was happening they were basically demanding him to come back please come and, back out absolutely right and it's really it's really powerful to watch that sort of a audience engagement but b that sort of sense of you have to be there you have to see this and you can only be there and see this because it's live and it's just really cool and really really exciting and so if you don't have the ability to really feed off that, you don't have the train to feed off of that anymore, then you get those sort of dead air sort of results. So, yeah, I think that that also, I think, speaks to how enduring this is, because so much live performance stuff is closed off in a lot of ways as like a culture class sort of issue these days. Uh, especially like live, like theatrical performance, not like live concerts, live musics, but like live theatrical performances are just in this weird little culture bubble where the WWE is not. Well, and also the sense that 
when you do see something that is live, uh, this theater, live theater on TV in some way, or there's maybe the one when they beam it to TV, um, sorry, not yeah. to TV, but to movie theaters and such, the sense of, uh, dear goodness, no, let's make sure the audience can't possibly interact with them, you know, yeah. or when they do the live musicals without a live audience. So you don't. Yeah hear any any response nobody's laughing at the jokes nobody's gasping at the surprises nobody's cheering when when somebody nails the high note and that completely <laughs> saps the product of uh and and the the production of of any of the energy that live performance gives that's what separates it that's what makes it special that's what makes it so compelling it's not just the fact that someone could mess up but it's that you are all sharing a moment together and uh like imagine if raw was live but they didn't like they they made sure you couldn't hear the audience you know somehow how ridiculous would that be and yet that is what you constantly i mean i interact as a musician I see this when people, you know, are shushing audience members when if they start clapping in between movements. And it's like, no, let them react. Let them have a reaction. It's not the end of the world if they clap at the wrong time or if they, you know, like are moved and are expressing themselves in a in a vocal way. Yes, obviously, try not to distract from the overall experience for everyone else around you. But part of it is the communal group experience and having you know like feeding on that energy is is what sustains moments uh, and gives them their their highest um, elements of drama or comedy <laughs> or or a uh, payoff and i'm thinking here of course of the beer truck yeah absolutely and i mean i think wwe is and they're you know wrestling companies have done this forever but they are beautifully strategic in that you know the the sort of corporate message time and time again is that like you know the fans the wwe universe as they call it are the ones who determine who's successful and who does x and who does y and that's definitely not always the case but that kind of fostering of this is a universe this is literally a community a global community of fans you know they tell you that you get to have an impact so that you come to the show and you try to have an impact and when you're even on social media and complaining about things, knowing that they pay attention to that sort of stuff, the the kind of modern meta narrative of WWE above all else is this kind of push and pull of people who feel like they can control the storyline based on fan reaction because in certain instances, WWE has kind of kowtowed to fan response because they're a live show and the fans are responding. And so we got to give them what they want. And then sometimes they don't want to give you what you want. And so fans respond to that either positively or negatively. And so there's this constant tension that plays out every single week, every single year in front of a live audience and on TV. And as a fan, you're constantly thinking, okay, this is going to be the time where if I boo loud enough or I cheer loud enough or I complain enough online, like they are going to change the direction of the storyline or make this bad guy a good guy or this good guy a bad guy or whatever it is. And maybe they will a couple of times and then you feel justified. So then you keep doing it. You know, that kind of empowerment that turns to entitlement back to empowerment is the constant tension that fans feel because WWE fosters that every single week. Not that Corey's ever fallen victim to any of that. Never. I've <laughs> never complained online about wrestling in my life. <laughs> well, before we wrap up here, um, I, Noel, I was, I'm going to start with you. I'm very curious. Did you have any uh, favorite 
uh, fights or favorite personalities and wrestlers or moments from what you watched or that you remember from previous viewing experience or positive or negative? What's, what are the things like handful of things that most stood out to you? Um, I think a lot of it, and I didn't pick this up when I watched it, um, originally watched that WrestleMania, uh, all those years ago, but I, watching it again here was, I was just how keyed in the crowd was. Um, and I mean, this goes back to what we were just discussing, but that is just, that was really huge, I think. And, um, so that, that was something I really keyed into and really appreciated and enjoyed. Um, and I also liked sort of the occasional weirdness of their narratives. Um, like I had, for I had forgotten right up until it actually happened that they had actually killed uh, McMahon <laughs> and that limo explosion. And <laughs> I was just like, Oh, right. They did do this. I remember this uh, just again through like osmosis, but it was just like, this is really bizarre. And I was also just, why did they rip off 90210 like this? <laughs> and um but the willingness to do that kind of thing but also the willingness to maybe not tell their stockholders that that is what they were doing <laughs> um was really delightful and so I, I i like that they're willing to do those kind of just bizarre risk type of things even if they don't a either pay off or b pay off in a sense of actual like continuation of the storyline for whatever reason or actually pay it off in an emotionally satisfying sort of situation but that they're willing to take those kind of big swings and just go eh, it worked it didn't work eh, we're fine you'll you'll still tune in next week and so i i i appreciate that they can do that but also like this sort of cynical nature of like we got you we got you okay favorite performer um I don't know that I really have one in the stuff that I watched. Um, Who popped anyone or no? Um, well, it was, it was actually funny. And I'll, I'll repeat something that I asked Corey a little bit was about Mick Foley, um, especially during the, and this was during the limo explosion episode, the McMahon tribute episode, McMahon appreciation day <sighs> was he just comes out and like, as everyone else has done sort of rails against McMahon, but he's doing it in this, like really, he like uses the word misogyny and it's just like, this is really bizarre. And why why are we doing this? And I actually asked Corey if like Foley's sort of role within the WWE, given his multiple different personas, especially like dude love, um, was sort of like a Shakespearean gesture almost in a lot of ways. And that was really like a compelling like thought I had. Corey was just like, eh, sometimes. <laughs> um, but yeah, so uh, Foley popped. Um, but I think the one that popped in just sheer dedication for me is like The Undertaker. It's just like that guy is just dead eyes and just straight ahead unblinking. And the the amount of work that they put into selling that character on like a special effects level with the smoke and the lighting is really impressive and really glorious in a way that I feel like very few of the other performers get. And so, or, or like given, I should say by the production. So I really like the undertaker, even if he just seems massively overpowered. And he's still doing it. He was in the <laughs> yeah. very first episode of raw. He's 52 and he hasn't retired yet. And that's astonishing to me. Also, definitely, I think definitely the best intro music. There's some yeah. contenders, but like, 
it's just you hear the music and that's the thing this show trains you like all shows train you but to the point where you like someone's been in the ring too long and they don't seem to have a match it's like okay who's coming out so clearly someone's coming out then the lights go down and you hear that music you're like oh it's fill in the blank. Um, and Kane's music isn't quite as good, but he's got those red, like, pyrotechnics, which are pretty amazing. And I got to say, the, I, I vividly remember just always being, like, amazed at Kane's thing for a while, which I don't think the ones we watched had this in it, but is that he would just, like, be beaten a bunch and be on the ground and then just pop up to 90 degrees for at the waist like that. And yes. It's like how how like how does you, you how how <laughs> the, the core that all of them have clearly, but you know. <laughs> but uh, anyways, uh, Corey, who are who are your standouts and and what are your well? I thoughts? mean, yeah, I could I could go on forever. I mean, I think the yeah. Undertaker is the Stone Cold and Hulk Hogan and The Rock are probably the most important as far as broader culture goes. But The Undertaker, you know, is kind of the most enduring character as like a creation, you know, that he went from this very ridiculous sort of gimmicky thing and kind of carried it through all of the eras where, you know, like wrestling now WWE program is very what they call reality based. Like there are not, you know, in the 93 episode, there's clowns there's that you know, clown is not okay man no that's the point and doink doink is great but so in the 90s it was very much like occupational base like they had a race car driver they had a garbage man uh the the man who plays kane was initially a psychotic dentist so like it was very occupation based and now it's very much like these guys are unbelievable crossfit athletes who kick ass and yet like a character who's still very important to all of that is like a character who's been buried alive, who's been electrocuted, who has died and come back to life as a biker and then been buried alive again and then come back as the undead undertaker again. So that, that the undertaker has kind of endured through all of these different eras is something that I don't think will ever be matched in wrestling. And so he's an unbelievable figure. I mean, I think you know, in the modern context, it, it's hard to not appreciate what John Cena has been able to do as a person who was, you know, kind of very popular as kind of an underground emerging character, then became kind of the corporate face for a really long time that people resisted and now has kind of moved into this weird elder statesman role where people boo him and constantly chant Cena sucks but it's actually a term of endearment and he loves it and wants people to say that he sucks. Wrestling is so weird. You guys like they're just like, the, <laughs> they're like the, the, be, the biggest honor that the WWE crowd can give you is somehow figure out a way to chant. You suck to the tune of your entrance music is so weird. It's so weird, but it's also amazing. Who stood <laughs> out for you? That's what I want to know. Well, it's just the same, you know, figures that were, very compelling when I was watching it week to week because those are the storylines I'm most invested in. So I, I did, I don't get, I still don't get the, um, uh, what's his name? Uh, my, Brian, Mike, Michael Brian. What's Daniel Bryan. Daniel Bryan. I don't get the Daniel Bryan thing at all. I only watched a few of his matches. Um, it's, oh, cause people that say that a while. people say that he's, um, uh, a really good wrestler, and that's part of why they yes. like him so much. Um, so I haven't seen that enough of his matches to appreciate that element of it. Uh, yeah. but just as charismatic, I was like, I don't, 
I mean, I see what they're doing, but it's, I don't, I don't, I don't get it. Um, I'm sure that based on his overwhelming popularity, if I had watched that chunk of the show in any sort of a regular basis, I would be on board. But going back and just watching a handful of these episodes, especially going from some of the earlier episodes with wrestlers who had very little, if any, mic skills, to Stone Cold and Rock, who are just, I mean, there's a reason Rock went with the most electrifying man in sports entertainment and then later all of entertainment, because he's really good on the mic and he's got excellent timing and he's really good at smack talk. And like Stone Cold with, you know, like the against the, the intensity of that, the 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 wit and the timing and the 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 way that they built up McMahon as well as the performer with Stone Cold is very, very compelling. Uh, I always love Mankind and Undertaker as well. Undertaker. Um, but I also had just athletically, I really always appreciated seeing when the I like I remember Hardy Boys and Lita came in and were doing all these insane acrobatics, like jumping off the top ring and doing triple spiral, like all these a lot more gymnastic approach kind of, which mm-hmm. is not effective necessarily in actual wrestling, but looks cool <laughs> on TV. Looks I've, very cool when you jump off of stuff that's really high in the air. Yeah, like I remember watching the first TLC match. Uh, I remember the Hell in a Cell match. Like I like with. Like, I remember, like, uh, Mankind diving off the top of that cage, you know, like, these are moments that even though I don't have that strong of a connection to wrestling overall, I really, uh, like, they're compelling storytelling. It's, it's, it's storytelling through physicality, and it's tying in with very straightforward and basic, but universal themes of, you know, like the Undertaker and Kane, they did all this brother stuff, Brothers of Destruction or whatever it was. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and with all the saga of the McCain, of the McMahon family and like the, the fake wedding of Stephanie to Triple H would then turn into a real wedding and she was in on it all along. Like there's a lot of really universal themes they tie into with their, what have been the more compelling storylines for me and the universality of that added in with the energy they're able to capture from the audience and from the performers makes for really memorable uh, TV. In the more recent episodes, there were some of the performers that I enjoyed. I enjoyed more um, were, I really liked the little bit I got of, um, is it Langley? Uh, the the African-American uh, wrestler who was uh, in ECW. Oh, e- uh, oh Lashley. 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 Yeah, yeah. yeah he was really good. Yeah. And I, as I understand, was not on... Uh, WWE for very long. Um, Correct. He he just he's been working for these sort of secondary company that's constantly in flux. His contract just expired. He may be coming back very soon. Ah, just FYI. Yeah, we'll we'll see. So there were a handful of other ones that outside of the era that I watched that did kind of spark a bit more. But I think I it was really struck by how like the the difference in how successful the episodes were for me on a narrative basis if they, A, had a strong arc throughout the three hours. <laughs> and, uh, and Boy, if B, they don't have that arc. It, it, it's really long. Like, the draft episodes yep. we watched were just terrible. Like, I'm sorry, they're bad. And they're bad because I don't care about the draft because I'm not watching yeah. every week. And then it's just a bunch of matches that get way too repetitive. Um, so if they don't have an arc, it didn't work as well for me. But if they, um, if they, you know, if they had characters that I had any level of vested interest in, even if they hadn't been on any wrestling and any WWE, they'd been off doing movies or off doing something else and then came back 
and were talking to people I didn't know or care about, I was immediately invested in. And that's why I always think of soap operas with this, uh, because it's that same thing where you build a strong relationship with these different characters and they go on all sorts of insane journeys, constant heel and face turns and back and forth and building up this insane mythology. But you invest in it if they're if they're charismatic enough performers and you could just spit it all out years later because uh, it just like embeds itself in your brain and and suddenly that elevates everything else so the the physical performances and the just the spectacle of that gain this extra depth that that comes with the emotional investment from the storylines if they've been executed well so um that was a very long answer to a short question <laughs> i can't believe none of us mentioned the miz Oh I mean, my I god! I was actually going to mention the Miz, the Miz is my favorite, because the like when you talked about the energy of the crowd and stuff, like the energy he's putting into jumping up on on the ropes, and you can see behind him, no one gives a shit. <laughs> There's yeah, like he's acting just like he's jumping up on those ropes with the same energy that uh, Stone Cold or, or Rocky has, and no one's standing up. And you, if you just saw him, you would you wouldn't know that for a moment. That, that commitment and <laughs> that must be so draining <laughs> yeah it, but if you watched like this coming week's episode of raw he's gonna be in the main event and like he has kind of turned it around where now he's one of the two or three people who get the most crowd reaction mm-hmm. and if you are a longtime fan then you've kind of been on that road with him just like as you said with soap operas like if you know the structure you know the archetypes even if you don't know the specific performers you know if you watched a couple episodes that were in the same sequence within a few hours or i guess in this case like six because they're so long you kind of immediately are locked in you know they do an amazing job like from a promotional standpoint before big matches of giving you three or four minute montage clips set to some you know like a sort of simmering rock song or whatever and then suddenly by the end of it you're like Hell yeah, let's do this. I am fully invested in these people that I've never seen before, but it's going to be great. And I think that that is maybe the the most sort of enduring legacy of pro wrestling on TV or not is that despite all of the sort of horrible racial and gender politics that do absolutely exist, the the structure and the way that they can kind of manipulate the crowd is sort of unparalleled across all of popular culture and that translates to the tv screen especially when it's live every single week and again it just makes me all the more frustrated because imagine if it didn't have all the racial baggage and gender baggage because it doesn't need to there's so much labor practices terrible labor practices terrible politics from all the way at the top all the way down it's bad it's very very bad and it's not like another company is going to come in and make a niche for themselves and set themselves up as a true competitor to WWE at this point. So it's not like you can have like a a better version, like someone else take this model and do away with the toxic stuff that is not necessary and yeah. still like, – like, that's just not going to happen. So it's frustrating. Yeah, I mean most wrestling fans like me, as I told Noel earlier this week in some form, is that you kind of just are hoping – that when Vince McMahon dies, that he there's a little die. bit more He's progressivism. Like but it, it is there's a non-zero chance that Vince McMahon will live longer than me. <laughs> well, on that note, thank you so much, Corey, for coming back on the podcast to talk raw with us. Uh, where can our listeners find you and your work online? 
Uh, you can find me at tvguide.com. I'm recapping the blacklist this season. Uh, and you can find me on Twitter when I log back onto Twitter after an extended break, which will probably happen here sometime soon. Uh, I'm just uh, Corey Barker, twitter.com slash Corey Barker. Great. Well, thank you again so much for coming on. And thank you, everyone, for listening. We'll be back next week with another episode of The Televerse. Mm-hmm.